The readings from Kings chapter 3. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I am only a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you've asked this and haven't asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind no one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honour all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. Then. Solomon awoke. It had been a dream. He came to Jerusalem, where he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He offered up burnt offerings and offerings of well-being, and provided a feast for all his servants. Later, two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Please, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then, on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. We were together. There was no one else with us in the house. Only the two of us were in the house. Then, this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your servant slept. She laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, I saw that he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, clearly it was not the son I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living son is mine and the dead son is yours. The first said, no, the dead son is yours and the living son is mine. So they argued before the king. Then the king said, 
The one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. While the other says, not so, your son is dead and my son is the living one. So the king said, bring me a sword. And he brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living boy into two, then give half to the one and half to the other. But the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because compassion for her son burned within her, please, my lord, give not the living boy, certainly do not kill him. The other said, it shall be neither mine nor yours, kill it. Then the king responded, give the first woman the living boy, do not kill him, she is his mother. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to execute justice. Thank you, Carol. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been journeying through the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we follow the narrative lectionary here at Bloomsbury at the moment, which takes us on a journey through the story of God's actions through the people of Israel uh, up to Christmas, and then we pick up the Jesus story uh, with Advent. I'm aware two weeks ago, I did a pretty full-on historical critical deconstruction of the book of Joshua. And then I thought, well, we ought to rein it back from there. And last week, we had a creative sermon where I did a first-person narrative from the perspective of Nathan the prophet. I think this week you're getting more of a kind of a more normal Simon sermon, but I was pondering um, Job chapter 21, as you do. Uh, Job says in chapter 21, verse 3, bear with me and I will speak, and then after I have spoken, mock on. I think that's a fitting way into a sermon, but let's begin with prayer. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The question of what kind of person should lead a nation is not a new one, it seems. And as the UK embarks on its third prime minister in two months, I wonder what you would put as the top priority for uh, a newly appointed national leader. The famous political honeymoon period is often an opportunity for such a newly appointed leader to enact decisions that will soon be closed to them. And they must use it wisely, with the penalties for getting it wrong severe, as Liz Truss and her team quickly discovered. So what would you do if you were handed the golden ticket? What would be your political honeymoon period thing or things that you would want to get through? This was the question that God put to Solomon one night as he lay dreaming of his future reign in the early days of his ascension to the kingship of Israel. He could have chosen wealth, health and a long life, he could have chosen defeat for his enemies, but instead he chose wisdom. Except, well, he didn't actually ask for wisdom, if you were paying attention to the Bible reading. 
He asked for an understanding mind and to the ability to discern between good and evil. And he asked for this because he felt inadequate to the task of governing his people. But did you notice the resonance with another biblical narrative here? We've heard this phrase, discerning between good and evil, before, haven't we? If you cast your mind back to the beginning of Genesis, you'll remember that the tree in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve are instructed to avoid is the tree whose fruit gives the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon wants as a gift what Adam and Eve were denied, but which they took anyway, with somewhat disastrous consequences within the narrative. And I think we're invited here to think of Solomon as a kind of new Adam. Think about it. Like Adam, he falls into a deep sleep and is then met by a woman when he awakes. Except in Solomon's case, it's not Eve handing him the forbidden fruit. It's the Lady Wisdom, the personification of God's word in human form, who we meet in plenty of other places in the Hebrew Bible. She appears most notably in the book of Proverbs, a wisdom text attributed to Solomon where she summons people to heed the wise words that she speaks, because in them, she says, is found the secret to a long and happy life. And sure enough, Solomon's request for wisdom, the wisdom of discernment, unlocks for him not only the ability to govern Israel well, but also all the blessings of health and wealth that a king could ever desire. Well, so far, so archetypical. The story of Solomon's inauguration to the kingship has its parallels in other ancient Near Eastern stories of kings who have deities appearing to them in dreams and commissioning them to their task. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as the proverb goes. And so we come to the second part of the reading for today, the disturbing story of one dead baby and a living baby nearly being cut in half. It's in this story that Solomon's inner wisdom is put to the test in the real world of people's lives. And the question of whether he is fit to govern as a national leader is demonstrated by the complex reality of difficult decisions. In researching this sermon, I discovered a passage in the second book of Kings, uh, which seems to function as something of a parallel to our story this morning from the first book of Kings, the story of the judgment of Solomon. And, and when I read this little story in two Kings, I had one of those moments where I found myself thinking, do you know, I'm sure that wasn't in there last time I looked. Uh, listen to this story, uh, which is set a hundred or so years after the time of Solomon, um, with a different king. Uh, this is uh, Jehoram is the king, a little, little heard of king, um, and he's now king of the now divided Israel, and he's a descendant of Solomon. Anyway, 2 Kings 6. Now, as the king of Israel was walking on the city wall, a woman cried out to him, help my lord king. He said, 
No, let the Lord help you. How can I help you from the threshing floor or from the wine press? But then the king asked her, what is your complaint? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son and we will eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. And then the next day I said to her, give up your son and we'll eat him. But she's hidden her son. When the king heard these words of the woman, he tore his clothes and went on his way. It's a situation of siege and starvation, you will have gathered. Jehoram has no answer to this terrible situation. In contrast to Solomon, whose brutally ruthless wisdom enabled him to expose the hearts of the two women who came to him with their argument over whose son had died and whose son had lived. And I have to say, I find myself here wondering what wisdom really is. What, what's, what's the lesson I'm supposed to take from all of this? Is wisdom threatening to cut a child in half? I mean, we might argue, and I'm sure I have heard sermons in the past that have argued, that Solomon was so wise that he knew he would not have to go through with his terrible threat. But that does feel a little bit like special pleading, because if it had been a bluff, it wouldn't have worked. To bring it up to date for a moment, it's a bit like the contemporary arguments around the nuclear deterrent. You have to be willing to destroy everything for the possibility of not doing so to become viable. And I look at Solomon with his sword, or his soldier with his sword, and I look at the threats of nuclear annihilation, and I think, is this wisdom threatening destruction and death to secure life? I'm not sure, really. And I find myself with some searching questions that I'd love to be able to put to Solomon about how he saw wisdom functioning in the political sphere. Various minds have tried to define wisdom. You may know Oscar Wilde's adage that a fool knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. Sometimes a cynic knows the price of everything but the value of nothing, but fool works better for the purposes of this sermon. But then you get the great doctors of the church, Augustine and Aquinas, who sought to differentiate between a mere rational understanding of the fact on the one hand, to the wisdom of the underlying cause of why things are the way they are. You can think of this difference as being a difference between knowledge and wisdom. A bit like the difference between having on the one hand the mere knowledge of faith and on the other hand having the wisdom of love. The knowledge of faith and the wisdom of of love. And my question of Solomon's famous judgment is where in his threat to cut a child in half do we find the wisdom of love? Sure, his public political gamble worked and, you know, like a good detective, he unlocked the truth of who the real mother was. But is this the wisdom of love? I think there's not a lot of love coming from Solomon here. 
And maybe, maybe we need that in our political leaders. I kind of hope not, but maybe sometimes. I think the love in this story is found in the heart of the mother of the child. As she discovered that she was prepared to give up her claim on her baby in order to preserve its life. I want to suggest that while Solomon's wisdom brought him the knowledge of the facts and the situation, which was of course what he had asked for in his dream, the ability to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong, he got what he asked for, he got the wisdom of knowledge. But the real wisdom, the deep wisdom of love in this story, is found in the heart of the true mother. And to understand the real significance of this wisdom and how it can speak to us and our lives and our world, we have to delve a bit deeper into the relationship between these two women. Did you notice neither of them are named in the text? It's not unusual, really, for biblical stories about women, particularly women who are low on the social status. And these two women are about as far down the social ladder as it was possible for them to get. The Bible describes them as prostitutes. Women, of course, for whom at that time, unmarried and unplanned pregnancy would have been highly likely. And a tragic series of events has created the context for the rivalry between these two, with one mother desiring the child of the other to replace her own deceased offspring. It's not a new story, but neither is it an ancient one either. You don't have to look very far online to find stories of bereaved mothers abducting children. The mental stress of such a tragedy can create a context in which someone might do something that they would never normally consider. And so here we have these two women, both of them victims in multiple ways, from the abuses of their profession to their experiences of grief and outrage and loss. And they find themselves before the king, who is about to test out his newly acquired superpower of wisdom. And he commands a bloody sacrifice, the killing of the living child. And here I want us to stop for a moment and take a step back from the specifics of the story and realize that this is happening all the time, all around us, again and again and again, because this is the way the world works. The solution to problems is located in the inaction of violence against the innocent. It is the way the world works. People are traumatized and victimized by violence. People desire restitution and revenge. They desire that which is not theirs and so they take it by force. And we tell ourselves then that the solution to the spiraling conflict is just one further definitive act of righteous violence. This is how wars start. Not only actual wars between actual countries, but also personalized and individualized wars between people in community. We see it happening now in Ukraine. It has been happening for decades in Palestine. 
It has been happening for decades in South Sudan and in so many other places around the world. An experience of trauma and violence gives birth to a desire for retaliation and the renewed violence and trauma simply cycles the situation round to the next level and it spirals ever deeper towards hell. Think about it. If you hit me in the face, my strongest desire will be to hit you back. In other words, to imitate you, to do to you what you have done to me. But in order to teach you a lesson, I'm going to add a little bit. I'll hit you in the face just a little bit harder, which will make you then hate me even more and make you want to teach me a lesson too. If you're a driver, if you have that situation where someone cuts you up in traffic, you just want to do the same thing back, don't you? catch them at the next lights and then I'll pull in front of them a little bit more severely than they just pulled in front of me. It, this is the way violence escalates. When we feel hurt or insulted or wronged, the tendency is to imitate the offensive behaviour that has been exhibited by the other person, but to just add that little bit more. And this, this cycle of violence can only be stopped by someone refusing to imitate. As Jesus might have put it, the cycle of violence can only be stopped by someone turning the other cheek and not hitting back. By someone renouncing and sacrificing their righteous desire to retaliate in the name of peacekeeping. And so we come to the true mother of the child in our story, who by giving up her child to the other woman, enacted at her own great cost a non-violent end to their rivalry. The bereaved mother had already accepted Solomon's solution of bloody sacrifice. Her own experience of grief had blinded her to the possibility that there could ever be a peaceable end to this story. And how often is this the case in a situation of conflict that one side is willing to destroy what exists in order to get what they want or at the very least to ensure that their opponent doesn't get what they want. And so motivated by the wisdom of love, the mother relinquished her claim to the object of the rivalry, her own child. She sacrificed any hope of winning the argument for the sake of her child. Whereas the bereaved mother was willing to sacrifice the child for the sake of resolving the rivalry. Sometimes, and I'm sure some of you at least can relate to this, Winning a competition can start to feel like a matter of life and death. Whether that's on the football field or the monopoly board or wherever it is that you enact your competitive nature. Sometimes you just know you've got to win. And from the outside it's ridiculous. Of course it's ridiculous. But my imitating your desire to win strengthens your desire to win 
We each become the desired model for the other in a mutually reinforcing feedback loop. It's why we have football hooliganism. It's why we have so much gang violence on our streets. It's why we have escalating conflict in Ukraine. Too often, we close ourselves off from the wisdom of love, from the wisdom of giving up what we are trying to possess so that in place of spiraling conflict, we might find an abundance of life. And so to return to the two women before King Solomon. On the basis of the love shown by the child's mother, Solomon publicly declares her to be the mother. There's a, a, a theologian called René Girard who has written a lot on the spirals of violence that consume humans. And he talks about this passage. He says that it does not matter who was the biological mother Solomon never proves that with the DNA test. Rather, the one who was willing to sacrifice herself for the child's life is, in fact, the mother. Gerard goes on, the first woman was willing to sacrifice a child to the needs of rivalry, and sacrifice is always the foundation of rivalry as well as the solution to it. But it was the second woman, the child's mother, who was willing to sacrifice everything. And here I think we find ourselves making a leap into the example and teaching of Jesus. Fundamental to the Christian story is the concept that Christ is a sacrifice, who gave himself for the life of the world. And just as Christ died so that humanity might abandon the habit of violent sacrifice, so the child's mother sacrifices her own motherhood so that the child may live. She renounces that which is dearest to her, her own child, in order that life may prevail over death and peace may prevail over violence. The mother in this story is the personification of the wisdom of love. And I think she offers us a model for understanding God's love for humans as it is made known through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Too many people read into the crucifixion some transactional understanding of sin, whereby the only solution to human violent desires is a God who meets out a corresponding punishment on his own divine son. This is the worldview of Solomon. It is the ruthless logic of the dictator, and it traps those who are already hurt and hurting into further cycles of violent retribution. But there is another way. There is the wisdom of love, by which the cross becomes the moment when God relinquishes all claim on that which they love, when God gives up their own child in order that human injustice can exhaust itself on the innocent and through that sacrifice discover a new and unexpected path to life. So if you find yourself wondering what this morning's disturbing story from One Kings might have to say to our world and our lives, I suggest that it is this. There is always another way.
There is always a path to be chosen that avoids perpetuating the cycles of victimhood and violence. There is a deeper wisdom at work in the world and it is the wisdom of love. And we are, each of us, invited to discover its call and its reality in the decisions we take in our lives, in our relationships, in our communities. As we take our own decisive step away from violence, as the knowledge of our faith becomes the deeper wisdom of love. Let us pray. Loving and everlasting Lord, we pray that your grace may always precede and follow us, shedding light on our path as members of this congregation, making us realize how to better serve you in our homes, our church, our cities, and our world. For we are conscious of the many pitfalls lying ahead and of the blunders we make every time we take up the task of distinguishing right from wrong. May we rejoice at our accomplishments without being complacent about our record. And may we recognize our failures without succumbing to pessimism or lapsing into inaction. O oh Lord, hear us as we pray for wisdom, the virtue without which all material goods are meaningless and knowledge only a fleeting comfort. Help us recognize in the public sphere those who place justice above self-aggrandizement, who understand the dangers of unchecked power, who feel God's inspiration is needed to govern as well-rounded grown-up adults not as unruly children. May we show the same clarity of mind and humbleness we find in King Solomon's words, whenever we're called to hold office and be aware of our limits, lest other people bear the consequences of our mistakes. O oh Lord, hear us as we pray for forgiveness, the ability to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards those outing us, the people we care about, or even strangers, allowing us to pursue a more daring course of action, one that is not tainted with the desire to retaliate or get even. Help us see how often 
our legal and social norms, focus too heavily on punishment, as if retribution were the key for the restoration of fractured relationships amidst brokenness. May we look for more compassionate ways to secure redress for wrongdoing, ways in which healing can prove more effective than coercion in dealing with our brothers, our sisters, and our neighbors. O oh Lord, hear us as we pray for love, that love all human beings, regardless of their class, gender, ethnicity, and nationality, can benefit from, as it is the only eternal wellspring of any durable peace. Help us emulate the generosity of the mother who is ready to let her child go to save his life, contemplating a much greater good than our transient desires or earthly allegiances. May we learn to think about ourselves as neither winners nor losers in the countless contests within our society, but as followers of you and the citizens of your kingdom. Loving and everlasting Lord, hear our prayers as we steer our way thought by thought. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.